It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you grow your e-commerce business faster and more efficiently by cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and guidance from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello, Master Plan World. Welcome to our latest podcast. It is, as it always is, an absolute pleasure to have you listening. I'm Chloe Thomas, creator of the e-commerce Master Plan. I'm an author, speaker and consultant, and I focus on e-commerce business strategy and marketing. So how to help all of you get more customers. We're now over halfway through our, our January series, the 2017 e-commerce growth series sponsored by Vico, the number one inventory software. And if you haven't heard the other episodes in this series, please do go back and check them out as we've had some great insights and ideas to help you succeed this year. Please also join in the discussion in our Masterplan World Facebook group that you can find via ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook. Vico is the number one inventory software that allows you to sell across multiple marketplaces such as eBay, Amazon, Magento, WooCommerce and Shopify. And you can try Vico for free today at info.vico.com forward slash e-commerce dash master plan. Vico can make your systems work really smoothly, give your customers great service and save you time. And that time saving is something we talked a lot about in the double episode of efficiency advice from Giorgio of Shop America. Well, today we're going to continue that theme. Because today's special guest is Matt Warren, the founder of our series sponsors, Vico. But don't worry, this isn't a pitch episode. No, no, no. Rather, we're going to be diving into what led Matt to create Vico in the first place. And it's a great story with lots of advice for all of you. Because before Vico, Matt was a serial e-commerce business owner, and it was his own experiences running those e-commerce businesses that led to the creation of Vico. First came Blitz Enterprises, a five-year project which Matt grew from nothing to over £6 million per year turnover. Next was Jura Watches, which was a seven-year project, creating the UK's first official luxury watch retailer. Hi, Matt. Hi, Chloe. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm okay. After that kind of epic intro there. Um, I've, I've only really scratched the surface of an overview of you and your businesses and what you've been up to. So so can you let them know a little bit more of the colour around how you got started off in e-commerce, please? Sure. So it was 14 years ago. Um, I was a very young, 22 years old. Uh, I was a software engineer in an IT company and my boss offered me or suggested he could get me a discount on any watches. And being a bit of a geek, I decided okay, what, 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 what watches are they? How much do they cost? You know, what types are they? I didn't have a clue. So I did what I did. I went to Google and I was surprised I couldn't find anyone selling watches or any information like, you know, types, brands, how much they cost. Um, and in, in a light bulb moment, I thought, well, if no one's selling watches, I thought, well, this is a really good idea. I'm going to sell watches. I'm going to make millions of pounds doing this kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, that's what kind of sparked it off uh, was was that conversation from my boss. I just then uh, developed a, my own website. I um, you know, then decided to phone up all the watch brands, you know, Rolex, Amiga, all these very sort of luxury brands, and said, hey, guys, I've got this fantastic idea. I'm going to sell your watches online. I'm going to make us both loads of money, um, at which point they then completely laughed at me uh, <laughs> and told me how – stupid idea that was that the internet would never ever work and that the internet's full of fakes and and dodgy people um but me being a bit stubborn just i decided to crack on anyway and i uh basically just you know put the products up there even though i didn't have any stock uh quit my job um 
Uh, and then for like four weeks, nothing really happened. Um, didn't sell anything. And then suddenly we got our first sale. It was, it was a Gucci watch for like 350 pounds, first sale. And, and then uh, about two weeks later, we got another sale. It was actually really hard to find the watches because we didn't have any fish supply. So I was literally phoning around trying to find them get discounts so we could then pass them on to the customer. So we, we, so the, this was back in about 2002, right? So you, you, you got this, your boss went, do you want some watches? And he went, oh, interesting, created the site. And then you put the product up there without anything in stock. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So when, that, when that order it, came in, were, you were literally rushing around trying to find a watch to send to the customer? Quite literally. I ended up finding someone to supply it to me and meeting him in Tesco car park to do the deal um i mean i think we made about 30 pounds profit on that first one but it didn't matter you know and it, and it was so much effort as well it was mm. just crazy but it for me to prove that hey someone's willing to buy something quite expensive off my my not that great website so uh, and the way i just we got traffic to it because obviously it's brand new was just some ppc ads there's no competitors then so it's very very cheap Wow. So th- those first two sales in the first, what, eight weeks, and then, then you thought, right, this is, this, is, this is a goer. So what did you do next after that? Because obviously, think, you know, it, you, you grew it over five years to seven figures. So I think, yeah, I think at that point there was, there was a bit of a dodgy moment where I got an offer for a really good lucrative job in London in IT. And there was a, you know, after one sale, it was still was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm my mortgage is coming out every month. Uh, how do I afford my bills? And I was r- racking up loads of debt just to sort of live and prove this. And then, but the sales started to come in. I remember that uh, it was very Christmas time. We were getting, a, you know, a say two sales a week kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I was finding better suppliers um, around the world to sort of to, to do it. So it, it gradually built up. And then I decided to really kind of like go for it. I you know, went, got myself a small office. Um, and, and just invested in some stock was probably the first thing we did, um, just so we could offer next day delivery and, and things like that. So, so did, did you turn down that lucrative job in London then? I did. I, did. I remember the contract was on my at home and I was like really tempted, you know, and all my friends and my family thought it was crazy. You should just take this brilliant job in London, you know, it's a good career, that kind of stuff. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, I didn't for, for better or worse. But yeah, I, did, I didn't take the job, and and then the business started to grow. I mean, probably driven in the early days by PPC, and then obviously as things grew, SEO became um, become really important. But to be honest, it, we didn't do anything special. There was no one selling watches online. There was no competitors. Um, so you know, can't say it was any sort of genius thing. It was just timing, really. And you said once you, you took the, you went, right, we're going to take this seriously. I'm getting involved. The first thing you did was you bought stock so you could uh, you could offer next day delivery, which is not necessarily the obvious option, certainly not back in kind of 2002, kind of 2002, 2003 time, is because I, I read that as you went, right, customer service is going to be the winner here, which is very much a theme which we've only really seen emerging in the last couple of years as a big high ticket strategy uh, for for success and for growth. So, you know, how come you went, you went customer service first all the way back then? I think, you know, customers, very important selling point, stuff like next day delivery, also confidence uh, at the time when um, customers, you know, spending quite a lot of money online, especially for them. They wanted, you know, if it was something to say 10 day delivery or something against next day delivery, it's just more confidence for, for them. Um, I thought for me, it's a big conversion point. Is you know, always has been delivery. You know, how quick can you do it? Basically, um, it's, 
helps people convert, doesn't it? You know, if they know they're going to get it tomorrow, they're more likely to buy the item than waiting 10 days. Yeah, and in, interestingly, the um, there were some stats presented at Internet Retailing Conference by Feel Unique earlier this year, or sorry, early in, two, in late 2016, I should say, um, who have done a big project about improving their delivery. And they've seen listening to customer feedback and improving how they do the boxes and the courier methods and all the rest of it and the options they give customers in the first place has increased overseas repeat orders by 50%, which, you know, it just shows how important it is to get delivery right, both pre-purchase and post-purchase. Absolutely, because it's, it's, it's a big differentiator between e-commerce uh, customers, I think, and I see a bit of a competition now who can have the latest cutoff. Yeah, um, because someone's at like four o'clock in the afternoon looking on to have something, and you've got it offering still next day, and your competitor, you know, said, "Well, that's going to be two days now." Then they're not going to go with you; they're going to go with your competitor. So pushing those cutoffs as far as possible, as late in the day, um, is definitely an angle for for, for retailers. And quite a, an interesting logistical challenge as well. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Obviously, the later the cutoff, the much harder. <laughs> it <is. laughs> uh, it's uh, it amazes me how the geography plays. Well, it, it kind of when you think about it, it's it's kind of obvious that delivery that that geography would play into how late you can cut it off because it's all about what time the couriers need it into their main depot. So the closer you are to the main depot, the more it is. But you know, to think that that's something which is defining people's kind of investment strategies when it comes to bricks and mortar is, is quite impressive on the larger scale. But I feel I feel we're, we're diving down a very interesting cul-de-sac, but away from your story. So Matt, once you'd improved that customer service, how did how did you then grow um, your your site selling watches to this to the six million it got to by 2007? So the, the big focus was product catalog because there was limited information about the different products. We added thousands and thousands of different products. And to be honest, most of them we didn't expect to sell because they're quite unusual or rare, but it, it built up a really good uh, website of product information. So if you were remotely interested in watches or looking for watches, it became a really good place just to have a good browse around. Um, and that then also was, had really benefits for SEO because we had thousands and thousands of product pages. Uh, so good for SEO, good long, long keywords. Um, and that then started driving natural SEO. It probably took uh, eight months before the SEO really started becoming a major source of traffic for us um, because initially we were just driving it purely through relatively cheap PPC but you know even by the first year we were spending probably over £15,000 a month on, on, on PPC um, and, and the SEO was just our pure focus on the product catalogue you know make sure we had really good images on there really good descriptions stuff like you know, how big is the case how big is the strap that kind of stuff is you know very useful for lots of people, even people not buying, but you know just doing research. So that, that initially that was the first few few years was that, and, and then it was a case of we didn't do any PR, we didn't do any out, out we did the AdWords in house, which is fine then. I don't, don't think that I would recommend that nowadays. Yeah. And and it was just those are the kind of things that, that were growth. And yeah, I think in the first first year we did, we did a, a million pounds, and in, in the end it kind of it grew quite rapidly. And so your your strategy was really just to focus on enabling people to be able to find you via the PPC and the SEO side of things. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and that those are the really the routes to to market back in two thousand and two. And that continued as the strategy through to two thousand and seven in terms of growth. Uh, I think it changed. I, I, we, we suddenly got lots of competitors. People found out we were being successful. <laughs> so they just sprung out of nowhere, like literally five of them. Um, and so we had, to, we had to get better stuff like SEO. We started then doing a bit more content a little bit. 
um, but quite limited. But yeah, to be to be honest, it was purely focused on PPC, SEO, um, were the two main drivers um, that brought us most of our traffic. And I think probably referrals in the last few years of, of that business definitely helped, you know, because it became known as a good cheap place that was um, offering sort of next day delivery on watches. Cool. Well, I want to jump on to Jura watches now, which you set up in 2007. And that was rather a different start, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's pretty worth mentioning that what happened with Blitz um, wasn't a very, very great ending, to be honest. Um, commercially, a very successful company, you know, seven-figure turnover, six-figure profit, um, commercially fantastically well. What happened is we become so successful, the watch brands were not happy at all about us because we weren't official retailers. We were just buying them from there. You know, when they, they sold it to a shop, we'd go to that shop and, and buy them off them. Mm-hmm. So we kind of breaking, you know, they were really happy about this. We were buying from other countries. So people like, for example, Gucci UK, very upset that we were buying from perhaps Gucci France. Uh, and uh, so we then had a lot of litigation from these big brands uh, trying to sort of close us down. And they just tied us up in, in, in sort of loops of, of litigation costing us in the end, I think, half a million pounds. Wow. We had to close down the business. Just we could not afford to, uh, you know, to handle that, manage that kind of thing. It was unfortunate. But that was that was a really tricky time for me. You know, to have been so successful, mm. personally done really well, had, you know, big house, nice cars, and then lost. Basically, we had to close down the business. I had to sell everything, house, cars, uh, and uh, it was a bit of a low point for me. Um, but I uh, can imagine. Uh, yeah, and um, you know, you lose a bit of face. You know. No one cares whether it's commercially closed down or whether you got sued a bit. It's just, you know, it's still the same thing. You lost yeah. your business, closed down kind of thing. Um, so at the same time, rather stupidly, I decided that, okay, if we're going to, you know, we can, we know what to do. We know how to sell watches. Um, and we think there's a better market in the luxury watches, actually. And so this time we're going to start the new business, but we're going to go into partnership with the luxury brands. See, I, I find that amazing that, you could go through the pain of being sued by them to the extent that it cost you your business and everything else. But at the same time, you see an opportunity of actually working with them. I mean, that that's quite a, an emotional, that's a very grown up thing to do. I think, I think many of us would go, well, screw you. I'm going to go and do something else. But to actually then try, then try and very successfully get in bed with them is quite, um, I'm I'm in awe, and I imagine a lot of our listeners are going, "Wow, I'd have I'd have run to the hills." I think um, th- there was a bit of uh, stubbornness, but also a bit of we got hooked in. So what happened is before this litigation kicked off, we kind of saw this coming, as in we had hints of it coming, and we decided on doing this other model anyway of working with them, um, you know, doing it properly, kind of thing, and working the luxury brand. So we'd really sort of committed quite a lot of money to. Um, starting this kind of new brand, a new, a new, a new company, to the point that we, you know, we had quite a lot of money put into it and everything. And yeah, so the, 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 that company ended, and we had a choice: right, we commit this money, do we go ahead with it? I, I, it must have been just stupidity, to be honest. Um, I said yes, I mean, let's go for it. We, we took, we then we raised money from angel investors and we raised money from the bank because the work, working with the luxury brands meant we had to have a bricks and mortar store. There would not, no way would they supply online only. It just was never happening back then. So, and we had to, it couldn't be to any store. It had to be something really impressive because oh, they can pick and choose who they go with the luxury watch brands and, and distribution is very limited. So we opened uh, a store in Mayfair. Well, we took a rent out on one on a very expensive rent in Mayfair, but obviously the watch brands wouldn't supply us until they'd seen the store. 
and were happy and decided. So we, we took out this massive five-year lease in this really expensive store. We paid, I think, a quarter of a million to shop fit it. Uh, and it was a very scary and horrible time because we, all this money was all this money we raised was literally going out the door faster than we'd raised it, and yeah, and yeah. we had no suppliers on board. None of the watch brands had committed. Um, uh, it, it was a sucky time, to be honest. It was really difficult because it was really stressful. But eventually, we got the store open. It looked amazing. We went for like a digital store. We had the world's biggest plasma screen, 106 inches across the back, lots of touch screens everywhere. So we're trying to mix the digital with the uh, sort of traditional watch stuff. We opened it and we persuaded about, I think, three brands, very small, minor brands to come on board initially um, to sort of get us going. So I think I think then we launched the store. Uh, two months later, we ran out of money um, <laughs> and it was pretty horrific. And then we went back to our investors and I, that meeting I remember very well. I thought it was going to be pretty terrible. Uh, I pretty much thought we were going to get a complete torn apart. But bizarrely, they were really supportive because... Although we just launched the business, the online stuff had gone really, really well, even with these minor brands, enough that they were very encouraged um, that we managed to persuade. It was the first time any luxury brands allowed, uh, allowed anyone to sell online. So they, they backed us. They put more money in. And then I think seven months later, we got it back to break even. Um, so um, we're, we were lucky to have good investors and, um, and managed to get through that. But it, it was pretty close to a, a fa- fail one business and start the next one and, and nearly fail straight away was, would have been horrific. So just to, just to clarify there, the, um, the initial, those three initial minor watch brands that you got convinced by the store to let you stock their product and sell it online, they actually kind of financed you to, to the point because they could see the success so so your suppliers actually ended up helping you survive they they did yeah so one of the watch brands is a watch brand called oris it's not like you know a rolex or cartier but it's, it is a decent good really good brand and they allowed us to sell online and, and we stocked in store and the online sales were phenomenal because no one else was selling this brand online and they were like wow this is really cool they're very skeptical and very worried about selling online and it's it was hard work to persuade them, really hard work, but they, they, um, they were really impressed and they give us decent credit terms for stock, which they really didn't have to and probably shouldn't have if they had <laughs> a financial situation. But that and then our investors put another, I think, £100,000 in, gave us enough then to you know, get back, you know, get things in order and, and get the, uh, everything going. And then it was just a case of then spending three years persuading other brands to come on board, which was very difficult because a lot of those obviously had sued us and didn't particularly like us. Um, uh, <laughs> that, that was very challenging. And I, I, I am very proud of the team and me for doing that. Um, for one, companies that sued us turning around. Secondly, persuading them to sell online when they were sceptical, so or very sceptical. So did you in the end get everybody you wanted? I don't need you to name names. I'm just curious. Uh, I think we got about 90% of them, yeah. So, yeah, most most, most of them, a few um, didn't, but they, they they haven't sold online with anyone. Um, so it's a case of we persuaded everyone else. And I, I think we, we were the first company in the world to be allowed to sell online kind of thing. So, yeah. Excellent. So that was... That, that was quite the roller coaster as well. So, what was the? Did you go back to kind of the search strategy to grow that business as well? Was that pay per click and SEO based? Yeah, so obviously, brand new company, brand new website, SEO start from zero. So initially, it was PPC driven. Um, in fact, it was PPC driven. Um, the SEO obviously didn't kick off initially. We were so desperate for sales, we did everything. We wanted to watch forums, 
we started working and going to watch rooms, answering questions to people, not giving everyone the hard sell, just be, trying to be generally useful. Um, and particularly on, on the niche watch forums for that brand, um, just being helpful to people. And that, that actually helped a lot initially. It's not a scalable business model to be you know, commenting on forum posts, but it, it, got, it got us enough sales to, again, help. So we were just scrabbling around all different areas like that to try and um, grab any sale we could, basically. And then that continued to grow through to, to 2014. So what, did it continue being the pay-per-click and SEO side of things or did it become more about the customer service and the delivery? What, what do you think was the reason you might be able to grow it so high? And did you keep the store as well? Yes, yeah, so the, the store was a massive driver for the online stuff um, as well. So the store in its own right became profitable, but that was also a massive driver. It was in a busy location, so it got a lot of footfall. It really helped us build a brand. And I think that's one thing a lot of retailers don't think about is about building your own brand. When I first, when we first started Jura, I wanted to just call it something like Swiss watches because we're selling Swiss watches. Makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. And I, we hired this um, brilliant guy called Alistair to be our marketing director. And he kind of taught me that if you call it Swiss watches, no one's going to remember your name. They're going to think it's like, you know, smart watches, Swiss watches. They'll just forget it because they're just two generic names. And he invested a bit of time in coming up with the word Jura. And the reason it's called Jura is because it's an area of Switzerland called Jura Mountains, where all the watch manufacturers effectively have, uh, are there. And it became the word Jura means nothing to most people, and therefore our, the brand became important. People, you know, recognised us, and it down the line, that became a big driver for our growth. Actually, having our own brand, which people knew what it represent. Jura meant we were the online retailer of luxury watches that. You know, had a, a, where customer service was really important for us. Um, so we even had uh, a concierge service we gave to customers when they bought from us. And we partnered with the concierge company so they'd get like a membership and they could fight up this concierge service and they you know, help them from anything from their plumbing to uh, buying their next supercar uh, or, or stuff like that. So I think brand helped us, uh, not in the first year <laughs> or maybe the second year, but third, fourth, that started adding value. We did things like we did our own... Um, magazine um you know uh, again there's something i would would have done but a marketing director created this beautiful luxury magazine about watches that was really interesting to read if you, if you were interested in magazines very cleverly he got the brands to pay for it by them taking adverts <laughs> in it um we paid really good journalists then to write interesting content we sent it around to all our customers we had a big data most by then um so there's lots of things that perhaps you know um, i learned was you know yes i know a lot about tech and i know a lot about SEO and the digital side of stuff. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know that Alistair helped and added a really good element to us. Especially in the luxury sector, to be doing those more tangible, more uh, more attractive to that customer base uh, pro- types of marketing that don't really feel like marketing to them. They're, they're just as high value as the watches are, can be really powerful. They're really powerful. They take a lot of investment in time, planning, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, uh, and quite risky for that reason, but the, the payout from them were, were pretty big for us in the end. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the other thing is working with suppliers. We asked to build a really good relationship with all the watch brands, um, you know, attending events with them, doing events on their behalf even. So we had lots of events in our store for the watch brands where we'd invite VIP customers down. It was a lot of work. Um, there wasn't much sales in it for us, but the watch brands really loved that we were promoting their brand, and that meant then they helped us f- further down the line with everything from payment terms to more market to co-marketing with them. Um, so I think co-marketing and stuff like that with suppliers, maybe you know, for some categories it doesn't work. But I think for a lot of categories you'd be surprised 
you know, approaching a supplier about marketing, you know, sharing the cost of doing a marketing campaign is entirely possible. It is amazing quite how many product suppliers who you wouldn't have thought have an amount of budget available to spend on other people's marketing. If you yeah. just turn around and ask, you know, we're planning on doing this postcard and uh, we'd like to feature your product on it. It's £200 per thousand to support it. You know, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, you've got your, you've got at least got your print costs covered. If not, your um, if not pushing towards some of your postage too. Exactly. So a good example is GQ magazine. Um, obviously a very well-known magazine. The back page advert there is about £15,000. Um, but the watch fans like it because it's really good brand uh, identity for them. So they were happy to sort of you know, co-pay for an advert where we focus their brand and our store kind of thing. So um, anyway, and it worked really well for both parties. Excellent. So what happened at the end of Jura then? Um, so uh, after selling watches for 12 years um, and uh, by the end of it, not liking watches all that much, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of fell out of love with them. Um, my background is tech and technology, so um, time was right for for me to move on, and I wanted to get to a technology business. You know, the tech the tech world is very hot right now, so I decided to um, we we sold the business basically, and um, one of the biggest independent retailers in the UK, a company called CW Sellers, uh, headquartered um, in the Peak District, but they've got like I think seventeen stores around the UK. Um, I'd known them for a long time, and um, we we sold the business to them. And was that, uh, how long, I guess I don't want to get massively into how to sell a business, but just to give those, those people out there who think that might be their exit strategy at some point, how much, how long did it take you to sell it? Was it like, oh, we want to sell it and tomorrow the deal goes through, which I'm pretty confident is not the answer. Um, what, what was the, how long did it take you to get from the, the, the germination of the idea through to the, the cash in the bank? Um, so skipping out the marketing the company, we didn't do any of that. We just went, went because I had a relationship, I went to them directly and said, do you want to buy it? Um, and what, when the point was where they said they were interested, from that point, it took nine months to sell the business. Uh, I'm not going to lie, it's pretty painful um, on, for both parties. Uh, obviously, it's a lot of money. It's, it's a big purchase. Um, I think the, from the buyer's point of view, they're always worried about skeletons in the cupboard. Um, you know, things are going to come back and bite them and it's, it's a very scary thing buying a company you know, how well is it really run you can drill into numbers you can drill into paperwork um, that kind of stuff so um, it, it did take a long time um, it is quite stressful uh, but it's just like buying a house probably just 10 times worse <laughs> <laughs> and um, and given the fact you just had one buyer in mind and you went straight to them and said are you interested you you did it the fast track way I would suggest. Yeah, so actually with my previous business, Blitz, um, about a year before we went into legal trouble, we actually decided to sell that business as well. And with that one, we actually just put it for sale. We use a third-party agent, which I would highly recommend. So people who are specialists in selling uh, businesses, and they marketed it for us. They you know, shielded the calls, filtered out the people. Uh, I think in the end, we had then four people left that were interested and um, we got quite far down the line with that. Uh, but that was really fun and exciting, to be honest. You know, all these people come in, were really interested, in, you know, loved what we built, were really interested in buying it from all sorts of people. Uh, and um, yeah, that didn't work out in the end. But um, that 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 buying bit, that bit there, is really exciting. I'd say the bit afterwards where you agreed a deal and you've got to then try and everyone's trying to hold on, and make sure the deal goes through. 
uh, and, and trying to herd lawyers um, to do what you wanted to do. My, my really big advice for selling is when you, when you agree a deal with someone, get the heads of terms very detailed, like two, three pages. So what you don't want is the lawyers negotiating minor points six months down the lines for you because they love to do that and, and charge you for it. And just for anyone out there who's wondering what a heads of terms is, essentially at the point where you agree to do the deal, you create a, a document of all the key points of the deal and um, you and both the buyer and the seller sign it and then you get the lawyers fully involved to dot the I's and cross the T's. And so if you've left kind of things a bit woolly in that heads of terms, they will have a field day negotiating stuff that neither you nor the seller care about. Um, it's, uh Yeah. Tricky. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, definitely. And any small detail left out, then you've got to renegotiate six months down the line. And at that point, things can be quite, you know, you know, no one wants to give an inch. Everyone's pretty felt like it was an okay deal, okay deal. We're all both happy with it. But then if something comes up, it's very, very difficult. So let's f- flip on to, um, to, you said post your, your world of watches, it was time to move into the tech world. And was that your creation of Vico? Yeah, so I spent 12 years in e-commerce, you know, running a, we, we ended up with actually in two stores. We bought another company at another store. So um, we had, you know, two stores. We were selling on Amazon. We were selling through, um, originally my website, we moved to Shopify. with uh, a lot of phone orders. And we did trade events and stuff as well. And it was just frustration of, um, you know, when you're running a business, you just want to sell stuff. I wanted to sell watches. I wanted to provide a good service to my customers. Um but you end up with so much time taken up by stuff like, you know, making sure your inventory is right. You know, is your inventory right? Is, is there stuff missing? Uh, getting the order shipped out on time. Um, that all that kind of stuff gets in the way a lot of the time. And I try to find like different platforms to do it. And there's quite a few out there. I could never find one that was easy to use, um, was web-based and did all the things I want, which was, you know, inventory shipping and, and listing all in one platform. And by and, listing, you're meaning putting the products on Amazon, eBay, et cetera, and other marketplaces. Yeah. Just to exactly. clarify that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing I, I definitely strongly recommend is diversifying. So if you're just selling on Amazon, you know, you are beholden to Amazon. If you're just selling on your website, that's, that's good. You've got your own brand and everything, but you're probably losing or leaving money on the table in terms of other channels that you could be making money on. And also you, your business becomes stronger if you diversify. And if you're selling multiple channels, you know, if SEO drops off one day, you're not dead. you still got your Amazon or your eBay or, you know, your Etsy sales coming in. So, yeah. And, um, I have to say on that note, uh, and I try and avoid politics as much as possible on this podcast and generally in life. Um, but I have to say, I think one of the big themes of 2017, given that we've got the the Trump confusion and the Brexit confusion and lots of interesting, crazy going on in the world of of international trading and currency exchanges and all the rest of it. I think there's going to be a big move in e-commerce to take advantage of the fact of how easy it can be to sell cross-channel, to be sorry, cross-border and cross-marketplace. And I think even the company with the strongest personal website is going to get to the point where they want to diversify that risk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's diversifying risk. It's not like putting all your eggs in one basket. Mm. And I totally agree about international. eBay and Amazon in the last six months have launched tools to make it so much easier to list on foreign um, versions of their websites, you know, doing good, really good translations, do proper currency conversion. You've got you know, GSP from eBay so that you can ship goods to UK and they'll forward it on to an international. So it's getting easier and easier to do it. 
Uh, and I think, you know, as I think more retailers will hopefully, like you say, will look to international, especially British ones, um, you know, because there's, there's a real opportunity there. So all that e-commerce learning led you to create Vico. So what do you think? And, and actually, we should also say Vico, of course, is a, an e-commerce business itself. It's one of the SaaS ones, the software as a service, which we've had a couple of guests on talking about those in the past. So um, just quickly before we get into the top tips, Matt, what do you think is the most awesome thing about Vico right now? Most awesome thing about Vico, um, it's cheesy, but I love um, dealing with lots of e-commerce companies. Um, so I meet new ones every day. Uh, we've got some amazing ones there. And learning all the new stuff that e-commerce companies are doing, like Instagram's massive now for a lot of them in terms of as a sales channel. Um, but as a company, um, the big thing at the moment is um, we're, we're expanding really fast. We're just about to raise uh, about four million pounds, which we're going to use to open an office in the US if Mr. Trump allows us to. Um, <laughs> and we're, we're just really focused on, on building, making the product much better. So making it even easier, more integrations, more channels, um, more shipping integrations, and really building out the features. This e-commerce growth series is sponsored by Vico. Vico is the number one inventory software. Vico allows you to sell across multiple marketplaces, such as eBay, Amazon, Magento, WooCommerce and Shopify. You can try Vico for free today at info.vico.com forward slash e-commerce dash master plan. Vico is V-E-E-Q-O. So that's info.vico.com forward slash e-commerce dash master plan. Okay, cool. Well, I think then we should move on into the top tips round. And I love this section because it gives me and our listeners some really quick ideas for taking our businesses to the next level. So Matt, first up, your book top tip. If everyone listening to this podcast agreed to take Friday off and read a book to make their business better, which book would you recommend? I would recommend um, the biography on Elon Musk. And the reason being is that you get lots of books. You get practical books and inspirational books in my eye. And I, I enjoy both, but I get more value out of inspirational books um, because practical stuff, you can read blogs, you can listen to podcasts. There's a way to learn things. But to be really inspired, to, you know, to really get you motivated again sometimes, especially if you've had a you know, bad few months, you can read a book by Elon Musk where he basically his vision is to go to Mars, to build a spaceship to go to Mars and to rid the world of fossil fuels. There's nothing, there's no bigger vision from one man. And the fantastic thing is, is he's achieving that vision, which is you know, just crazy, really. And that, that book really inspired me to, and motivated me. Excellent. The traffic top tip next then. Which marketing method do you either prize above all others or think doesn't get the press it deserves? Well, from feedback from a lot of our customers here at Vico, I would definitely um, investigate Instagram uh, because we have customers now who are doing seven-figure turnovers based purely on Instagram marketing, which is phenomenal. Um, even for the things that perhaps aren't that exciting, uh, one of them is a fitness company that sells fitness you know, exercise things, um, but they've taken a bit of a lifestyle approach to it, and they have, you know, I think, 100,000 followers, and most of their sales come from that. I think one of your po- previous podcasts was around that, and I'd, it definitely is a trend I've seen, is to is stuff like Instagram and the other sort of image social networks is something I would investigate if I was a retailer. Yeah, if you're if you're in the right product, you can swing it in the right way. It's uh, it's crazily effective, and uh, maybe we need to have a chat later, Matt, about getting one of your your Instagram uh, success stories on the podcast later this year. I think definitely. Uh, <laughs> okay, the uh, the tool top tip then, maybe a collaboration tool, a social media plugin, a phone app, or just a way of working. Is there a cool little tool you use that makes you and your team more efficient from day to day? 
I would say uh, Slack is our tool. Probably one that's probably mentioned before, but it, it is fantastically useful. We have quite a remote team here. We have offices, two offices in the UK, and we have loads of guys remotely working around the world. And Slack is just a place for us to all want us to chat together. Um, so, and also we can share files, images, and we have different channels in there. So we can have a channel, a marketing channel, we can have a sales channel, we can have a support channel, and then it's a great place for the whole company to talk to each other in real time. Uh, and try and you know, keep the company culture together. So it's both kind of task orientated and culture chat orientated. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The startup top tip: If you met someone this weekend who's thinking of starting an e-commerce business or even a SaaS business, what would be your first piece of advice for them? Uh, my first bit would be uh, research, research, research uh, in terms of competitors and making sure that your USP against those competitors is really 10 times better than your competitors. Because once you're six months, 12 months into a business, you invest in money and you realize that what you're doing is only slightly better, it's hard to be competitive. So if you're a retailer, if you're starting out, go niche, go super niche to start with. Um, it doesn't matter if the total market's tiny, at least you get, it's a great way to kick off and you're more likely to get noticed for that reason. Um, the other advice I would give is when I started Jura, I built a really strong management team. I was still quite young. I was about 25 when I started that. And I, I, I surrounded myself with really good people who have been there and done it in different places, a really strong marketing guy. It's amazing if you go and ask people in your local business community who are well-respected and very clever that you want them to become your mentor or you want them to be your advisor um, and perhaps give them a bit of equity in your business, or maybe they'll even do it for free. Even reach out to well-known people in, in the world of e-commerce and say, look, will you sit on my board for twice a year to give me advice? It's amazing what people will do in those circumstances, and how often they'll say yes. Um, and those people can you know, really help you fill in the gaps that you have in terms of your own skill set as a CEO or, or the rest of the business. Some excellent advice there. Well, Master Plan World, you can find those top tips and links to everything else we've been chatting about in today's episode by heading over to ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash 85-5. Matt, before we say goodbye, could you please let the listeners know where they can find you and your business on the web and social media, please? So you can find more about Vico at, v- at www.vico, which is V-E-E-Q-O.com. As easy as that. Well, I'll add that link as well and everything else we talked about in the show notes. Masterplan World, those are at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash 85-5 or just head to the website, click on the podcast tab or use the search box. Matt, thank you so much for being on the Ecommerce Masterplan podcast today and for being so incredibly generous, sharing the experience of your ups and downs of your e-commerce life with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Chloe. It's been an absolute pleasure for me. I'm going to keep listening to all your podcasts. They are fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much. Wow, what a roller coaster is uh, is Matt's journey there, and a fantastic story. I hope. I know that's a bit bit different from what we usually do, but I hope you've all got got some uh, some good takeaways there, some reassurance, some ideas maybe about how that might fit in with your journey in the world of e-commerce. Because there's um, God. That's my head still spinning from that interview. That was great. Well, look, if you've enjoyed the start of our 2017 e-commerce growth series sponsored by Vico, then please make sure you're spreading the word to your e-commerce friends because we want to get, I want to get this great content out to as many people as possible. Spread it however you like. If you can't think of someone to tell or you, you can't think of a social media platform to put it on, then please do head over to iTunes and put a review on for me because that will help put it in front of new people. It's how their algorithm works. 
And of course, make sure you join in the conversation in the e-commerce master plan world Facebook group, which you can find via ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook. Next time, which is just a couple of days away, we're going to be diving into the world of bricks and clicks. So all of you bricks and clicks businesses out there have been wondering when I was going to include that this month. Well, that's coming up very, very soon. And we're going to be talking about that with the highly successful business Love Aroma. It's a great story and there's loads of great tips and advice in that one for you too. So have a great week, all of you, and uh, keep optimising. Thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast. Find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com.